She never liked her stepfather. He drank and swore and hit. Sometimes he would threaten to kill her, though she didn't take the threat seriously. She was 13 and still invincible. But then he climbed into her bed one night. And he was completely naked and he had a knife. And I took the knife and I just, I think some people have a spirit of resilience that will get them through. And I must have always had that because I took the knife and I, I, I went to stab him in the hand just to get him away from me. And it, it went into his hand just a little bit. And he was really shocked by that. And my brother came out, you know, and was staring at him. And he just went, well, I never thought your sister would do that as he was bandaging his hand. She forced him out of her room that night, but something inside her said that maybe she should take his threats more seriously from now on. Three days later, he shot her. Clay Lasher Summers was still bleeding on her bedroom floor when police arrived. Her mother was crying at her feet. Her stepfather, the man who had just minutes earlier fired a 30 6 high-caliber hunting rifle at her back, was sitting calmly at the kitchen table. He was drinking tea. From the team that brought you accused in collaboration with The Trace, this is Aftermath, a podcast about gunshot survivors. I'm Amber Hunt. There's a line that I, as an American crime reporter, have come across a lot in news releases. The injuries were not considered life-threatening. After 20 years reporting about violent crime, I have come to hate those words. They're too simplistic, too dismissive. Yeah, a life didn't end, but there's a decent chance it changed forever. Isn't that newsworthy, too? In 1970, Clay Lasher Summers survived the gunshot her stepfather blasted into her back. But that gunshot changed the trajectory of her life. She's 61 years old now, and she carries scars that go far beyond the physical. She suffers from anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder. She's dealt with depression and severe trust issues. She's had to excise unhealthy people from her life, the mother who didn't protect her, the brother who tried but developed a drug problem later in life. That gunshot changed everything. So this is the survivor garden. Um, And every survivor that comes here has worked on it. Um, It's winter in Westmoreland, New Hampshire, which is to say it's cold and a bit gray, but still beautiful. This is a quaint corner of the country where rolling green hills are specked with rustic barns. Clay lives here with Bill, her partner. They've lived together a few years now, but their lives are more entwined than that suggests. In 1970, the two were neighbors, right near the farm they share today. Clay would run and get muddy with Bill and his siblings, especially his sister Judy, who was Clay's best friend. Even all the years that I was away, there would be times where, you know, you flash back to memories in your childhood that were, like, magical. Magical. And um, I know being on this land when I was small was magical for me. And um, I always saw Bill, like, sort of running in the field like in my memories, which I don't ever think you did run in the field. I don't, I, don't, I don't know if he ever ran in the field. I've flown here to New Hampshire to talk to Clay about the shooting and how it affected the rest of her life. She's the first person I'm interviewing for this project, 
for which I'm traveling the country and talking to people who have survived gunshot wounds in America. I'm not alone. For this project, I've partnered with The Trace, a nonprofit newsroom that focuses on gun violence. Elizabeth Van Brocklin, a Trace reporter, and I have spent nearly a year working on this project together. So why are we doing this? I could rattle off statistics about how more than 80,000 people are injured by gunfire every year in America, and I could try to contextualize that by saying that number represents the entire population of, say, Troy, Michigan, or Gary, Indiana, or Longview, Texas. But the truth is that I don't think most people care about statistics. I think their eyes gloss over when they hear them. Nor is my point to weigh in politically. The debate over gun laws has coincidentally come to the foreground in recent months as we've been working on this project, but it wasn't the driving force here. The people we've interviewed have opinions, to be sure, and some of them will include when it's relevant. But if you're looking for nuanced debate about politics, this isn't the place. Instead, I want to tell the stories of survivors. I want to help people understand what issues they face and how their lives changed the moment they were shot. Yes, they survived, but that's not the whole story. There's also the aftermath. So I'm in New Hampshire with Elizabeth, and there's also a local photographer here with us in Clay's beautiful home. Oh, hi, John. Hi. So glad you're back. Thanks for having us. (laughs) John Tully has met Clay once before when he took her photo for a short piece on RollingStone.com. The four of us are sitting in Clay's living room in Westmoreland. At least, I think that's how it's pronounced. It's spelled Westmoreland, but as one word. But Clay says it as... Westmoreland. I never seem to get it quite right. This is where Clay's story begins. I lived, I was born in Vermont, right across the border, um, in Bellows Falls. It's literally 10 miles from here. Her mother worked as an administrator for the Experiment in International Living, which arranged for young adults, or sometimes teenagers, to go abroad and live with families in foreign countries. Clay's dad was a salesman with Michelin, the tire company. He sold tires throughout the Northeast. Clay's parents lived together, but they weren't technically married. And their relationship, as Clay diplomatically put it, It was not very good. When Clay was about four years old, her father left. Clay and her brother stayed with Elsa, Clay's mother, an alcoholic. What I remember of that time is just being hungry, walking for miles and miles in the snow, um, because whenever there was any money in the house, she would walk from our house to Route 9 to buy beer, if you can believe this. A highly educated woman. And we would walk with her and then walk home. With beer. What? With beer, not with food? No food. One day, when Clay was about nine years old, a new man arrived. His name was Crosley Fletcher. He was 33 years old, and he'd already killed a man. In 1960, Fletcher shot and killed his friend, 27-year-old Alan W. Thompson, while the two were raccoon hunting. Fletcher told police at the time that he had climbed a tree after a raccoon that had been trapped by a hound. Thompson supposedly began climbing after him and managed to be in the line of fire. 
He left behind four children. Fletcher was never charged in his friend's death. Clay remembered learning about the shooting after her mother married Fletcher in 1966. It made her uneasy for two reasons. Like Clay's mother, Fletcher was an alcoholic prone to violence when he drank. And also, he sure liked his guns. When he got drunk, those guns would come out. They'd be laid out on the table. He would dry shoot them. I think that's what they call it. They would dry fire, which is where they fire with no bullet in it. So he would always do that also. What kind um, of guns are these? He had a 30-odd six and a twenty-two. Yeah, they ruled it as accidental hunting accident. People, you know, people didn't really think it was a hunting accident. Life with Fletcher as her stepfather was tough for Clay. She and her brother went to school with bruises, details of which I've read in decades-old police memos and court reports. But times were different then. It seems the whole town knew about the abuse, and occasionally someone would try to intervene. But Clay's mother never agreed to press charges. So Clay and her brother sought refuge at neighbors' homes. For Clay, that meant staying with her school friend, Judy. Bill, Clay's partner today, was Judy's brother. No, she used to come here a lot when you know she was good, because her and uh, my sister were good friends. That's Bill speaking. He remembers that night pretty well, in part because it was the last time he would see Clay for more than four decades. One January night in 1970, Clay spent the night at Bill and Judy's. The family were farmers, and the next morning, the scene that unfolded was as rural New Hampshire as you can get. It was time to slaughter one of the steers. I remember I was playing in the house with Judy, and her mom said, I think you should take Clay in your bedroom. She's never really seen anything like this. I mean, they grew up like that, but, and I was like, no, I want to see. They watched the steer be slaughtered, and then they went back to playing. Yeah, so we played the rest of the afternoon, and then, of course, Judy and they didn't want me to go home that night because we were probably having so much fun. Clay didn't want to go home either. She tried to finagle one more night's stay. She was unnerved after that naked-in-her-bed business, but she didn't tell Bill's parents the specifics. And I remember them, we had to all crawl into the station wagon, and then they brought me home. When I got home that night, my stepfather's brother was there, and they were drinking. My mother was drunk. Um, When everybody left, my stepfather beat my brother up. And my brother ran out of the house, and ran to a neighbor down the road and said, Crosley is beating everyone up. And so the neighbor called the constable and the constable said, I'm not coming down there. Uh, My stepfather pinned me up against the wall again. And by this time I was just flat out pissed because he had tried to get into my bed. I, I was just, I, I was, I would say I was a kid full of fury about this. He, you know, was yelling at my mother and he was screaming at me and he had his guns out all the time. And I remember my mother coming out of her bedroom 
looking at me and saying, he's going to really shoot you tonight, I think. And then she went and hid in my bedroom closet. I thought inside myself, yeah, he really is going to do it. I mean, I had this premonition. So I went in my bedroom and I went to shut the door and he shot into the door. Yeah. And then he shot me. Clay's memory of the shooting is cinematic. So then what happened was I remember upon impact, it's like you watch the movies of, of, of time release where the body goes up and the body goes down and then it goes up and it lands. And I remember that all in slow motion. And then I obviously couldn't move and I was bleeding and a lot. Clay's brother, Gordon, had already run to the Bittner's home next door. He told the parents there that his stepfather was threatening to kill them all, to blow up the house. Fletcher had even cut the phone lines to keep them from calling for help. Richard Bittner, who happened to be a conservation officer, called the local constable, Dick Rhodes. But Rhodes had gotten this type of call before and had grown weary of intervening only to have Ailsa refuse to press charges against her abusive husband. So he refused to come. And my brother came back and saw me and just went, he just turned around and ran again and went back to my neighbor. So my neighbor called the fishing game officer who lived up the road from us and he may have called the sheriff, but the fishing game officer came right away and, and, and the sheriff came and an ambulance came. Clay was rushed to the hospital. Her mother stayed behind. Children who endure trauma at a young age carry it on into adulthood. Even if they're otherwise in healthy homes, the ramifications of a single traumatic event can lead to a whole host of problems down the road, both medically and behaviorally. I wanted to understand this better, so I talked to Stephen Berkowitz of the University of Pennsylvania about it. He's an associate professor at the Perlman School of Medicine and a co-chair of the Disaster and Trauma Issues Committee for the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. We know that protective factor after traumatic event is familial and social support. And unfortunately, at least in, in my experience, kids that get shot at this age don't really have that. The problem is, is that when they don't have families that can support and, and buffer these experiences, they're much more likely to become impaired and debilitated, to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. As Clay describes the months she spent recovering in a hospital, it's jarring how alone she was. Her biological father visited occasionally. Her mother, Ailsa, barely visited at all. And when she did, she blamed Clay for getting shot. She told me that my stepfather was in jail because of me. Oh. And she was very angry. Um, I, and I don't think, I think that was the last time I saw her for a long, long time. That's actually a softer version of what she told police, according to a statement she gave to Deputy Sheriff Frank Walker as her daughter recovered in a hospital bed. According to a transcript, Elsa said, quote, Let me tell you this 13 year old girls are bitches. 13-year-old children, especially girls, are terrible. And I've been thinking and thinking about the other night, and last time I saw Clay, I gathered from what she said. She didn't really come out and say it. She had been baiting him, egging him on, end quote. 
Bill's family learned what happened the morning after the shooting. He sensed his parents felt guilt about bringing Clay back home that night, but... Nobody wanted to talk about it. Um, I mean, the kids at school would say things and make comments, but the teachers and everybody else kept it very, very hush-hush. It was quiet. Nobody wanted to talk about it. And you, know, you would think that that would be should be the other way around. They should talk about it. Why do you think that? Well, because it makes some kids understand how things how things work and how, what what happened. And I don't think that helps kids at all. It's like they know what happened, but nobody wants to tell them anything. And I think you. Yeah, Sometimes you just need to talk about it. Newspapers at the time barely covered the case. The Portsmouth Herald had a two-sentence brief under the headline, Man Held for Wounding Stepdaughter. It read, quote, Crosley Fletcher, 33, of Westmoreland, was arraigned in district court today on a charge of aggravated assault and the shooting of his 13-year-old stepdaughter. He entered no plea, end quote. Another short story reported that Clay was in fair condition at a hospital in Hanover where she was taken Sunday with a gunshot wound in the lower back. You'd never know from those descriptions what lay ahead for Clay, but she remembers well. She remembers the head surgeon was mean, most doctors unsympathetic. One said to her, Stop your screaming. How did you ever get through being shot? Like, there's things like that that people say to you that you never forget. You never forget that. She was 13 years old and without her mother. She remembers screaming as nurses poked and prodded and debrided her wounds. Sometimes she would run away from them. It all hurt too much. She remembers being visited by a psychiatrist, whom she recalls as kind but out of his depth. He had her look at some Rorschach cards, you know, the ink blots, and she said that was it, therapy complete. No one back then knew much about PTSD. But looking back, Clay can point to signs, like how she couldn't watch much TV because anytime something violent came on. I would just be terrified. I mean, I remember the body sensations more than anything. Clay had barely gotten out of the hospital before she had to go to court. Fletcher testified that the shooting was an accident. He said he'd been cleaning his gun when it went off. Ailsa, Clay's mother, backed him up. The accident defense might have been more convincing if school officials and townspeople hadn't finally come forward as character witnesses against the man. The conservation officer and constable both said they saw tragedy coming but felt helpless to stop it. Teachers said that Clay and her brother were routinely bruised and they suspected abuse at home. Ailsa referred to it as discipline rather than abuse. About Gordon, Clay's little brother... She told police that her husband had helped set him straight. Quote, he shaped that kid up. Before I married Crosley, he was a stinking rotten brat. He was spoiled. Crosley did an awful lot for him. End quote. How was the um, experience of testifying? It was awful. I remember the day of the trial, you know, that I had to speak, the sheriff brought my dad and I into his office and they had all the photographs laid out of the scene and I remember sort of like looking at them for a minute and then not looking at them 
and I remember testifying my mother was drunk and I remember you know having to look at my stepfather you know it was all awful and I think that I've just hidden that away right because there's only so much trauma anybody can take in it was awful it was unpleasant Fletcher was sentenced for two and a half to eight years in prison According to the New Hampshire Department of Corrections, he ultimately served 10 months. It's unclear why he was released so early, department spokesman Jeffrey Lyons told me in an email. Either it had been ordered by a judge and not noted in the record, or Fletcher got time off for good behavior. Years after the shooting, Clay began writing about her childhood as a way to get rid of some demons. As part of that, she got as many court and police records as she could— she also got digital copies of the black and white photographs. Yeah, I don't know. There's other pictures somewhere, but I don't know where they are. But that was my bedroom, so... And you, you never saw that again? Oh, no, I have. I've been in it. But I mean, as a... You didn't stay there again, right? No, right. no, no, no. So that house is still standing, and you're saying that door is still... It's still weird. I mean, that's what I remember. It's fascinating how Clay compartmentalizes her emotions. She can look at photos of her blood-smeared bedroom and not flinch. She can describe the night her father figure fired a gun into her back and stay composed. But she cries a lot, too, especially when talking about the few happy memories she has, like spending time with her real dad. I did see him, off and on, yeah. And I used to remember... When he was doing his sales loops, he would take me fishing, fly rod fishing. Clay chokes up. That's a nice memory. Something else that's tough for her to talk about is who's really to blame for what happened to her. She thinks a lot about that. She, of course, blames Fletcher, who died in December of 2009. If you go by newspaper mentions of his life, his time on Earth was noteworthy only for the havoc he wreaked. The man he killed, leaving four children without a father, and Clay, whose body still expels shrapnel. But there were a lot of other people in that town who saw her bruises and heard his threats and looked the other way. You know, since I've come back, there's, you know, a lot of people just will not engage and nor do I want to engage with them because I sort of feel like the whole town knew and never dealt with it, never took care of me, right? Right. So I sort of hold the whole town accountable for that. I mean, I don't do it publicly, but in fact, how could you not know that, you know, a kid was being abused? Well, and I I don't want to put my... But as I've gotten older, I've realized how much you are supposed to protect the children in your vicinity, right? So I'm I'm just assuming that as you've gotten older that that's become clearer to you too that that was not okay to to allow this to happen to somebody in the I mean, it was you were never a child, okay. you I knew it. I yeah. knew it then it wasn't okay, right? Yeah. This is not okay on any level, right? And so people that you know, you can always say that you know, at that time period, X, Y, or Z, and this is why. And I do believe that people were terrified of my stepfather. And that was part of the reason. Elizabeth, my reporting partner from The Trace, senses the underlying anger when Clay talks about her mom, the woman who sensed she was about to be shot and, instead of protecting her, hid in the closet. Elizabeth asks, 
if she holds her mom accountable? Okay, so this is a really tricky question, right? Because I've always been of the belief that there's times when people act in ways that are really horrible, like really horrible. There's no moral high ground. There's nothing. On a level in which I have to protect myself, I say she was a very ill woman, right? She's very ill. You know, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it because on one hand, I think, you know, we can all give the excuses, right? That she, I know that she had some mental illness. She was an alcoholic. She lied her way through life. She did all the things that she did. Do I hold her accountable? Well, she put me in a very bad situation and, and I will always suffer. Always suffer, not suffer, but have to live with, never get rid of what happened, right? So I always have to think of that. Do I wanna spend a lot of time hating her? No, because that doesn't do me any good, right? How a woman about to get shot goes in a fucking closet and hide. There's something really wrong with that. So, all I know is that I have had to bear all of that trauma inside of me. And she caused that trauma. Because I certainly haven't done that to my children. I love my children more than anything. I would do anything for them in a healthy way that I could do. My children are the most important thing in my life. And even when they fail, because they have to fail, right? Everybody fails, I fail. They're the people that will carry on to make changes in the world and there's something about being a mother that is really hard to be described, but it's um, about absolute love and how, how you do that without selfishness, right? But any mother that inflicts trauma physically, emotionally, talks to a child in the simplest ways of not being kind, of demeaning work, words, of not embracing them and embracing their talents. That, you know, I don't get it. I'll never get it as long as I live. Ever, ever, ever. Clay survived the shooting, but that's not all. Her life was what she calls a hot mess for years afterward, as she bounced around from an uncle to her father, to a girl's home, to some foster homes, some of which were abusive. When she entered adulthood, allowed by the state to finally take care of herself, she started confronting the baggage she'd been saddled with. She ran a battered women's shelter and learned the signs of PTSD. She learned what trauma does to a child's brain and how her shooting had stunted her in a lot of ways. If you're shot when you're young, you don't learn basic rules of behavior. Explain um, that to me. Well... I mean, if you're a child who lives with parents who abuse you and then shoot you, you don't learn about trust, you don't learn about care, you don't learn basic life lessons. So you may get through your life, but there are always, I mean, anybody has lessons to learn all through their life. But I've discovered that 
um, around issues of trust that I had a lot to learn um, and still have a lot to learn. When I relay what Clay says to Dr. Berkowitz, the childhood trauma expert, he says it all sounds familiar. Post-traumatic stress disorder is really a significant illness in these circumstances. And we know that the changes in the brain uh, from early life stress, for those people who develop PTSD and have chronic PTSD, these same things occur. I asked him to elaborate on PTSD, which is mentioned a lot these days, but is still kind of a hard concept for some people to grasp. Let's just take a couple symptoms that we know occur with post-traumatic stress disorder. Imagine having really profound nightmares on a regular basis that interrupt your sleep and then make it hard for you to go back to sleep regularly. I mean, we know that people that don't sleep don't do well, but imagine this as being the cause. Add to that ongoing intrusive thoughts that, you know, memories or, or images that pop into your head of being shot or being raped or, or any, you know, god-awful experience and how they would impair your ability to concentrate, have a social relationship. Anybody's ever had a panic attack, not because of PTSD, they know you know, how overwhelming and how horrible that feels. It's common for people that have panic disorder and panic attacks to not leave their houses. So you can't just send them to therapy and expect that they're going to recover. You need to provide other forms of support, you know, provide them with pro-social activity, the potential for other types of growth and, and development, employment, and whatnot. Those are very important parts of recovery for, for these kids. It almost um, sounds like which, losing a limb, you know, where the, yeah. you, you can't grow it back, but you can figure out how to make do. Right. Clay has battled depression and anxiety as an adult. Confrontations trigger her PTSD in ways she can't control. But she's fought to be proactive about it, checking herself in to psychiatric hospitals for short stints when she felt she needed recentering. That meant sometimes leaving her children with their father, which she says was painful but necessary. Her daughter Callie remembers some of those stints. I was probably nine or ten, maybe, and I remember she was struggling with mental illness issues and depression issues, and she just needed to be in a hospital setting for a little while. It was talked to us the same way that, like, if someone's sick, they're in the hospital, but we didn't really have a lot of context as to why, because we were still pretty young. She doesn't remember how she found out her mom had been shot as a child. She feels like she's just always known. I think I didn't really think about it in terms of gun violence or in terms of how that had really impacted her until we were teenagers, because when you're 10 years old, you're kind of thinking about yourself and not really considering like why your parents are the way they are. It gave more context to why she had some mental illness issues and she spent some time um, hospitalized. It wasn't just that she was struggling with depression. It was that there was a reason and that she like actually did have PTSD. It made a lot more sense why she was, like we grew up in rural upstate New York. There's guns everywhere. I spent most of my time on a farm and it made a lot more sense why guns really freaked her out. Every year that passed, though, portions of her childhood and of Clay's parenting began to make sense. Callie says learning more about the shooting gave her context. She understood that mom was more than depressed. She had PTSD, 
and it made sense why she reacted so strongly to anger and violence and why guns really freaked her out, which felt odd in upstate New Hampshire, where people like to hunt. Callie's father, Clay's husband, died of cancer when she was 13. Callie said solo parenting was hard for her mom. Because the way that she was raised, she didn't have a great understanding of like what a traditional family structure was. When your mother abuses you and your stepfather shoots you and your actual father abandons you, you don't have a great sense of what an actual family unit should look like. And so I think sometimes she struggled to deal with that because she didn't have like a backdrop of what that should look like in her own life. Callie says it's clear that her mother's shooting directly impacted all three kids. Clay's not as close with her two sons as she is her daughter, who draws a line between her mother's shooting and the work she's done for the Washington State Democrats. Both she and Clay are gun control advocates. Callie thinks her mom's upbringing made it tougher for her to relate to men, particularly when they seemed angry. I think it was sometimes harder for her to relate to my brothers. I think sometimes she had a harder time being there when they were being really tough and she was doing it alone. When teenage boys are angry, it can be tough and scary sometimes, and I think that she had a hard time addressing that. Callie's two brothers do not share her and Clay's political beliefs, and one in particular... My brother was very unhappy about her starting to tell her story more publicly, especially when she she did a story in Rolling Stone where they took a picture of her back and that he was very upset that she would put that out there. And she's been putting it out there a lot over the past few years. If you search her name online, you'll find videos of her talking to both state and national lawmakers. In one talk, she said she wants people to, quote, really understand the effects that gun violence has on not only the people who are shot, but on the community as a whole, end quote. In those talks, she has spelled out the lifelong medical ramifications she's endured. Some of the issues, like painful arthritis in her back and repeated kidney infections, might have happened without the shooting, but she doesn't think so. Other issues she faces are clearly directly connected to the shooting. Shrapnel still comes out of my body. So um, Wait, now it does still? Hmm. Oh, yeah, you can see it in my back. Sometimes it comes out. Um, Yeah, there's a piece right here. See this little piece here? Oh. Yeah. Like it looks like graphite under the skin or something. Like if you broke a So I have, um, sometimes when that comes out, it creates sores. And I have a lot of shrapnel on my um, parts of my butt, too. Um, And they also had to take skin grafts from there. So there's a lot of times if my immune system is shot, it will just break out into sores, right? So um, every time it works its way out, I feel it. And sometimes I can take it out. Sometimes I can't. It's in some of it is in my breasts. These kinds of issues aren't unique to Clay. Studies show that children who endure trauma face health problems at far greater rates than kids who don't. As Berkowitz says, Early life stress can lead to a range of medical issues. Things like obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, some forms of cancer, autoimmune diseases, and so forth. And there's more. I think another important consequence that we see of early life stress and, and trauma 
is we, we see increased rates of criminality and incarceration, homelessness, unemployment, and substance abuse. And these are all directly correlated. And in fact, there's some pretty good research that shows that substance abuse and alcoholism are related to early life stress and trauma. Today, Clay tries to keep stress at bay. Her life largely centers on her activism and the farm she shares with Bill, with whom she reconnected after her husband died. After she and Bill fell in love, Clay moved back to Westmoreland. New Dawn Farm is beautiful land where she grows vegetables, herbs, and flowers. She has two huge greenhouses that are, as we tour them, pretty barren, it being December in New Hampshire and all. But come this summer, the place will be bustling. When I started this, there was no soil. It was like we put the shovel in and we could get this far. And then I just kept building it up and building it up uh, for the past four years. And now we have a garden. Bill's home has once again become a safe haven. A few years ago, Clay began opening up their farm to other survivors of violent crime. It's been hard circling back to New Hampshire, she says, but she sees it as a milestone in her healing. I feel like, you know, a lot of people aren't ever given the opportunity to circle back. Um, And I feel like I've circled back and I've learned a lot by coming back to this place. In the aftermath, things feel different this time. She lives in a home where she feels safe with a man who loves and protects her. Her path has been hard, but it's also been, at times, beautiful. I've been really lucky to have two men in my life who have taught me so much about love. And I feel honored to share this part of my life with him. And my children and my family love him, and everybody who comes to the farm has loved him. I think it's an amazing thing. This season on Aftermath. Jumping off a building, riding a car, somebody pull up next to you, you get shot. Walking out of your house, you get shot. They rode down there with some weapons, a pump-action shotgun and uh, an AK-47. I still wish I'd been able to stop him. I don't ever want to see my mother crying on top of my grave, so I'm going to quit this shit right here, right now. Aftermath is the result of a partnership between the Cincinnati Enquirer, part of the USA Today Network, and The Trace. It's reported by Amber Hunt and Elizabeth Van Brocklin, edited by Amy Wilson, and produced by Phil Didion and Amanda Rossman. Music is by Andrew Higley. Intern Brianna Rice assisted. Some episodes include additional sound courtesy of awesome local journalists. For full clip credits, go to our website. The podcast was supported in part by a fellowship from the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia Journalism School. For videos, photos, and more, go to aftermathpod.com. You can follow us on Twitter at AftermathPod or find us on Facebook. <laughs>